0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I understand that you feel a certain responsibility for these patients, but as their physician, so do I. It's my duty to preserve their lives for as long as possible, even if that means- I will not return them to the Borg. Are you thinking of what's best for them, or for you? Clarify. You said it yourself. You made a mistake. And Seven of Nine doesn't like to make mistakes. She strives for perfection. I want you to think about the motivation behind your decision. Are you doing what's right for those three people? Or are you trying to alleviate the guilt you feel over what happened eight years ago? The damage I did can never be repaired. And my guilt is irrelevant. I simply want them to experience individuality. As I have. As you have. At one time, you were confined to this sick bay. Your program was limited to emergency medical protocols. In some ways, you were not unlike a drone. But you were granted the opportunity to explore your individuality. You were allowed to expand your program. Your mobile emitter gives you freedom of movement. Your thoughts are your own. If you were told you had to become a drone again, I believe you would resist. They would resist as well. They would choose freedom, no matter how fleeting. Only you and I can truly understand that. Survival is insufficient.
1: And Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 2nd, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color to black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today, where the number is 519-661-3600. If you want to call and join in on our subjects today, we're going to be talking about a little bit of continuation of some of the things I've started over the past few weeks, part two of... Uh, science being blinded by politics, which we started last week going to talk a little more about bailouts the uh, general Motors AIG from politics to the ethics of it, which has now been raising its ugly face, and then there's of course conservatives still you've got to save those conservatives from themselves, and the main theme for the morning will be you know swallowing that old line about freedom that you can't eat freedom, but before I get into all that. If you've got a copy of this past Saturday's London Free Press lying around and you'd like to see what I see staring back at me most weeks through the soundproof glass here between us, almost on top of the front page headline, you will see CHRW's own Tafsir Diallo, who as operator of this show, quietly puts up with my weekly diatribes, but apparently when I'm not around, <laughs> he leads a not-so-secret double life as one of this area's hottest upcoming talents on the so-called hip-hop scene, apparently getting ready to enter Juno and Polaris music prize territory. Wow. Quoting the third-year political science student about his passion, Free Press writer James Reaney wrote on the weekend, quote, yellow, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Uh, Twenty-one expects to study political science one more year at UWO. While pursuing his studies, he's won poetry slams for students, dominating the hip-hop category. I don't feel comfortable being called a rapper, an MC, a hip-hop artist, says the graduate of Toronto's Upper Canada College. At times, it feels like such a pejorative. They make it sound like such a negative connotation. I just like writing. I consider myself someone who writes a storyteller. I extract inspiration from everywhere. And, of course, Diallo hosts a 94.9 CHRW hip-hop show called The Backpack Chronicles at 6 p.m. every other Saturday, according to the paper right here on CHRW Radio. And the rave reviews and yet another photo of Taff on the front page of the entertainment section are quite impressive. I've got to tell you guys, I was, uh, you know, we're always the last to know, aren't we? It's always a quiet one, too, ladies and gentlemen, that just, uh, you know, they're sitting there. (laughs) Taff's laughing at me through the window there. Now, now, Taff, about that political science thing, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) that's just so cool. Congratulations, by the way. Great. So, um, you heard that opening clip taken from actually an episode of Voyager. And in that episode, they're talking about uh, would you rather be free all your life, or would you rather just exist at a subsistence level and, and uh, you know, eat, sleep, multiply, you know, go to the washroom, wake up, eat, sleep, multiply, that kind of life? A lot of people actually think that way. And the thing that got me thinking about this was a very short letter in the National Post on uh, February 24th of this year, written by a fellow named Dick uh, Rick Durst in Milford Bay, Ontario. And the, and the headline almost said it all. It said, you can't, quote-unquote, eat freedom. And here's what he wrote. He was obviously responding to a previous article, which I think is secondary to, to what I want to talk about today. But he wrote that Conrad Black, quote, shows an elitist ignorance in his essay on Cuba. Under Batista, there was a scarcity of food for anyone who did not work for an American company. People starved. Today, everyone has food and education. Healthcare metrics, including child mortality and longevity, are among the best in the world, far exceeding the United States. People in Haiti and the Dominican would love to trade freedom for food, health care, and education. You can't eat freedom, end quote. And that's uh, a sentiment that I hear a lot, particularly, interestingly enough, from a lot of Europeans. Because... Uh, of their background and their history, and, and their non-history of freedom, in fact. They, they, they never really had a history of freedom. Now, you know, this opinion kind of disgusts me to such a great degree and is expressed in so many different variants of the same sentiment that a statement pointing to all the contradictions that this writer has just made, it, it kind of has to be made, since so many people buy into that flawed kind of reasoning. Now, to begin with, you cannot trade you know, your freedom for food, health care, and education, without having that freedom in the first place, right? Like, how can I trade my freedom if I haven't got it in the first place? And none of the examples of nations cited by the writer ever had any freedom to trade for anything, as if that was even metaphysically possible. You can't trade freedom. Freedom is, is an inalienable aspect of your being. Now, the writer's blatant attack on America contradicts its own argument. Uh, The people who starved in Cuba, according to the letter writer, were those who did not work for an American company. So America's guilty because the people who did work for them are fine. Of course, it also means that people... uh, who did, not, who, who did work for an American company were eating. They weren't starving. The people working for Cuban companies apparently must have been starving, and the people working for German companies and other companies that were investing in Cuba at the time, maybe their, their workers were all starving too. It's just blatant anti-Americanism. And, of course, the stats on healthcare are always skewed by, um, by the miserable and taking into account some of the real bad spots in America that have problems galore. Now, uh, the writer apparently presumes that any producer or employer or creator of wealth is not permitted to trade value for value with its employees without first feeding the rest of the country. Now, like, how, how kind of wacko is that? So w- the person expressing this point of view, this idea that you can't eat freedom, is in philosophical terms uh, what we call concrete bound, and is sort of frozen out of perceptual levels. Uh, they only know what they think they see, okay? So when you're unable to think abstractly or conceptually or to understand the critical relationship between the abstract and the provision of food, healthcare, education, etc., his argument that you can't eat freedom is so far from the truth as to defile logic, reason, and experience. It pretty well reduces us to, or anybody who would live that way, to an animal level of existence and virtually deny the right of those who seek to rise above that the freedom they need to do so. And, of course, freedom is what really separates we sentient humans from from the rest of the animal kingdom, which is not capable of rational action or choice. You'll never see a chimpanzee land a a man on the moon or a chimpanzee on the moon, or anything, for that matter. It wouldn't even be a thought to occur to them. Now, the process by which Cuba and other anti-capitalist, anti-freedom countries distribute their food, health, education, etc., is evil come on folks it's non-voluntary and it consistently requires the initiation of physical force against the people who actually produce the food the peters in favor of the people who consume their product without paying for it or without paying for it fairly at least the pauls and the cubas of the world cannot survive without their political para, you know politically parasitic attachments to relatively freer productive citizens of other nations, and to the slavery of their own professional people—that's how it. That's how the whole system works, and it can never rise above subsistence. That's its, They're at top. That's it. That's it for Cuba. As long as they want to be socialist, they will never, ever rise above the level they're at now. Um, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul is the law of a primitive jungle. You know, they always blame capitalism for it when capitalism's the one system of all of them that pr- pr- you know, does not permit that. The strong against the weak, you know, that's what robbing Peter to pay Paul is, except in, 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 in like human political terms. And the strong is the government, which justifies its immoral act, transfers of wealth via the altruistic argument that they, of course, are protecting the weak. And protecting them from Who? some enemy, some people trying to hurt them, no, against the producers in our society whose only crime is to produce the wealth upon which all of the rest of us depend for our survival. And that's what happens when you have the morality totally inverted. But to the concrete-bound mentalities who can actually say and believe that you can't eat freedom, I can only say they've already swallowed a load of intellectual poison whose only possible consequence without the continued injustice against producers, is to create the very artificial starvations of people we see constantly around the world whenever governments abandon the principles of freedom and enterprise and capitalism. You see that everywhere. And so, you know, when the mind has been poisoned, the body won't be far behind. And, uh, you know, that's why they say in that Voyager clip that survival is insufficient. In fact, if you only aim for survival, and this is economically factual, you won't survive. You have to aim for better. You've got to shoot for the moon. You've got to shoot for something better all the time. And when you get there, you've got to move on. That's what being a human being is all about. Because, uh, you know, otherwise in the end, it's the people in jail who get food, health care, and education from governments for free. And that's pretty well their status in life. We're going to take a quick break now and we come back on the other side of this. We're going to be talking about... Oh, those conservatives, what are they doing to themselves now? Worst defense of conservatives, conservatism I ever saw, back after this.
2: After that, they put me in a program called Scared Straight. Have you ever heard of this? This is where they put bad kids like me in prison. And the prisoners yell at us, they tell us scary stories. You know, they try to scare us into being good. And the other kids were scared. But I was not scared, I was just heckling the guy, hey, shut up, you convict. <laughs> like, I'm going to take advice from you you look like a person that made all the right choices in life <laughs> wrap this up i gotta be out of here by three what time you leaving. this guy
0: <laughs> word has it uh, the don is en route to visit napoleon word travels fast. Not as fast as good news. No news is good news. Here today, gone tomorrow. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Your turn. <laughs>
1: this is my turn. Hey, business should be run like a government. We need responsible management of government money taxes. It's our money. Government should help people in need. We've got to kickstart the economy. We've got to dig, dig our way out of a hole. All of these bromides you hear that are parts of political platforms and ideology. Uh, welcome back. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM or 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to call in. And our email, which I didn't mention earlier, is CHRW at gmail.com. And, of course, you can visit our archives at www.justrightmedia.org, where you also can connect from there to chrwradio.com as well. Man, lots of stuff there. But i got to tell you, I've been, uh, over the past few weeks, talking about, of course... Uh, Conservatives and 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 how conservatism is lacking of values, too many mixed values under the conservative umbrella, and I ran into the worst defense ever of conservative conservatism. Sorry, um, I think this appeared in the London Free Press. I didn't write the paper, but I'm pretty sure it was uh, written by of all people by uh, Peter Worthington. Believe it or not, March 23rd, conservatives need core values. That's what the headline of the um, editorial says. And he wrote, and by the way, what he's writing about here is the very thing that I talked about, I think it was last week on the show, if not the week before, uh, about uh, Hugh Siegel's idea of conservatism versus Terence Corcoran's, and that's what he's referring to here as well. And he writes, and this is Peter Worthington speaking, quote, Recently in the Globe and Mail, Tory Senator Hugh Siegel outlined his views on what he thinks should constitute Canadian conservatism. In the same week, Siegel was rebutted, or rebutted, sort of, by the National Post's Terence Corcoran, who basically thinks conservatism is, quote, a defense of smaller government, free trade, an open economy, market forces, and tax cuts that actually reduce taxes on all Canadians, regardless of their income, end quote. Now, I remember when I read that very thing last time, I said, I commented, well, that's not conservatism, that's the philosophy I'm talking about. It's capitalism, a Freedom Party philosophy. But I digress. Quote, to Corcoran, says um, Worthington, Siegel's version of conservatism sprawls across the ideological landscape, encompassing every political and ideological tree stump imaginable. Corcoran's impatient with Siegel's waffle conservatism and says the trouble with conservatives today is that it's even harder to find principles than it was back in the Brian Mulroney years of free trade in the GST. As one who is often labeled conservative, I think all of them miss the point, writes Worthington, including Republican conservatives who think John McCain is a liberal sellout. There are two main realities that unite all philosophic conservatives, be they Republicans or Democrats in the U.S., liberals or conservatives in Canada. One is national security, the other is defense in the military. Now, it's interesting, he says there's two main realities, not philosophies. You know, he says, because there's, you know, there's really only one reality, by the way. But besides that point, I think he means two philosophies. And he's talking about that, and realities that unite, um, but not philosophically, okay, apparently. You don't have to be united philosophically. Um, I don't even know how he can do that. But anyways, he says it's national security in the military. And he continues, issues such as same-sex marriage, abortion, sanctity of life, stem cell research, free trade, big or small government, political ethics, tax cuts, bailouts, universal health care, immigration, and other controversial subjects that periodically surface are incidental when it comes to security and defense. Without adequate national security and an effective military, all other issues become irrelevant. Um, You know, I read that, and I think I know what he's trying to say, but the this, this statement's a non-sequitur. It just doesn't follow that, uh, that that makes that a more important issue. I think metaphysically he's saying that if you exist, you got to exist first before you can care about anything else. But it's not saying anything about conservatism. And he writes that in the U.S., McCain has never wavered on either security or defense. But now that he's president, Obama seems to be scrambling to catch up on these two issues, end quote. So therefore, I interpret that as, according to Worthington then, Obama's a conservative too. He's catching up now, since all the other issues supported by Obama are apparently also inclusive under Worthington's idea of umbrella of conservatism. Any of those things, don't matter, you know, they're all secondary. Wow, everything from ethics to, uh, oh, just unbelievable. And then he says, as for differences outlined by Siegel and Corcoran, neither mentions what I'd consider essentials of conservative thinking, security and defense, which I suspect Corcoran believes in more than does Siegel, and that's his end to his article. Now, I found that last observation particularly um, revealing, actually, in that Worthington has correctly surmised that the more capitalistic views of Corcoran would most logically lead to what he considers essential, which is, actually the consequence, not the cause. Um, Now, this is a funny thing, but I was looking at the headline. The headline of this, what does it read? It says, uh, conservatives need core values, right? Now, I don't know, incidentally, if the editor at the Free Press actually read Worthington's editorial before he put that headline on there. Because you understand that all headlines in newspapers are not written by the writers. They're written by the editors. There's a lot of reasons for that, and it's a a consistent practice, as I understand it. So whoever read it... uh, maybe didn't get the message because Worthington's argument was that conservatives do have core values, that there's security and national defense, but the headline reads that uh, conservatives need core values. But, you know, irony of ironies, I think this time <laughs> the free press got it right. Now, this brings to mind what Ayn Rand said on conservatism way back when. And, um, A lot of people think this is a great contradiction of some of the things that she would talk about, especially when people like myself get involved in politics. Because, uh, you know, she wrote way back in the uh, early or late 60s, early 70s, and I quote her here. She says, um, by the way, in advising her readers to avoid exclusively political movements and parties, okay. Ayn Rand wrote this. She said, quote, above all, do not join the wrong ideological group or movement in order to, quote, unquote, do something. By ideological, in this context, I mean groups or movements proclaiming some vaguely generalized, undefined, and usually contradictory political goals. In other words, I think what Rand means here is she really means non ideological <laughs> groups. And she gives as her example, she says, uh, example, e.g., the Conservative Party which subordinates reason to faith and substitutes theocracy for capitalism, or the libertarian hippies, who subordinate reason to whims and substitute anarchism for capitalism. To join such groups means to reverse the philosophical hierarchy and to sell out fundamental principles for the sake of some superficial political action which is bound to fail. It means that you help defeat your ideas through the victory of your enemies, and that's really what you're doing, end quote. And you can bet I'll be elaborating on this theme in greater detail sometime <laughs> in the future. But I, Ayn Rand's description of what's happening on the so-called, uh, quote-unquote, right of the political spectrum and uh, the whole movement is, is as right on today as it was back in the 60s and 70s when she wrote it. And I have to tell you, it probably cost me a few years, but I was a real true skeptic at the time I first encountered this statement, but by, you know, that she wrote about this. But over the past 20 or 30 years of my political life after Ayn Rand, I guess that should be it should be a year, you know, 30 AR. But uh, <laughs> I've I've watched that very scenario play itself out over and over and over and over and over. You know, history just repeats. It repeats. It repeats, and the same people keep doing the same things, even though, though it doesn't take them. Even even if it's taken in the opposite direction of where they want to go. Not just doesn't get them where they want to go. So, you know, there's simply no escape from reality and the consequential necessity of reason for humanity, and yet people keep believing that there is. Now, as for conservative and libertarian strategies of the big tent approach, wherein you accept conservatives and libertarians of every and all persuasion just to get the numbers up, this, of course, leads to the end of whatever beliefs any single participant in that compromise might hold. And so, why are you doing it in the first place? If you're doing it for your cause, you're doing it the wrong way. If you're doing it to get into power and stay in power and you don't really care about principles, causes, directions, what you're doing, what you, you know, really you don't have to care about other people, then you do what our politicians are doing. Of course, that is what motivates them. Okay, we're coming across to the bottom of the hour now. We're going to take a quick break. We've got some ads to go to, and when we come back on the other side, We're going to be talking about auto bailouts, Obama apparently flip flopping, and no more endless bailouts. What's this? Anyways, we're going to be moving from politics to ethics on a lot of these issues, and we'll be back right after this break.
0: Buenos dias. We are from Mexico. We are from Acapulco. We are from the Fire Department of Acapulco. I am Jose. I am Jose B. I am Martínez, I am Martínez, but I had a vasectomy, oh, so you are a dry (laughs) Martínez. We would like to explain to you, nafta. Si. Unos, dos, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. No comprendo, nafta. No comprendo NAFTA, you don't understand, no matter how much you beg. We won't trade Acapulco for Winnipeg. No way, Jose! I love the Canadian nation. NAFTA has made them berserk. They used to come down for vacation. But now they come looking for work. No need to be angry and cursing. I tell my Canadian friends NAFTA is just a new version Of Montezuma's revenge
2: In recent months, my task force has been reviewing requests by General Motors and Chrysler for additional government assistance, as well as plans developed by each of these companies to restructure, to modernize, and to make themselves more competitive. Our evaluation is now complete. These companies and this industry must ultimately stand on their own, not as wards of the state. And that's why The federal government provided General Motors and Chrysler with emergency loans to prevent their sudden collapse at the end of last year, only on the condition that they would develop plans to restructure. In keeping with that agreement, each company has submitted a plan to restructure. But after careful analysis, we've determined that neither goes far enough to warrant the substantial new investments that these companies are requesting. And so today, I'm announcing that my administration will offer GM and Chrysler a limited additional period of time to work with creditors, unions, and other stakeholders to fundamentally restructure in a way that would justify an investment of additional taxpayer dollars. During this period, they must produce plans that would give the American people confidence in their long-term prospects for success. Now, what we're asking for is difficult. It will require hard choices by companies. It will require unions and workers who've already made extraordinarily painful concessions to do more. It will require creditors to recognize that they can't hold out for the prospect of endless government
1: bailouts. No more endless government bailouts. Uh, Obama sounds downright conservative there, doesn't he? (laughs) I think uh, Peter Worthington would like to have him as the leader of the Conservative Party. No more government bailouts, companies must be self-sufficient, not wards of the state. Wow, sounds downright conservative. And of course, when you hear the other side of the story, it's not very conservative at all. But, uh, boy, I'll tell you the fallout and the anger about all of this. That's, we dealt with a lot of that yesterday or last week, Sorry, the anger uh, over AIG. I've got a headline here, GM boss quits at Obama bid. And all kinds of talk about the government taking over private enterprise and stuff. Well... Yeah, he who pays a piper calls a tune, and if you want money from them, and it's like your your creditors, you know, they kind of tell you how to play your game, too, once you're in debt too much to them, and uh, you're no longer able to pay according to contract on your own. Then the creditors have a right to say things. Now, you know, I hate to brag, but everything in this whole bailout fiasco, both south of the border and here at home, is playing out exactly as I have been outlining on this very show over the past two years. It's like they're reading the script. They're, they're tuning in to Just Right, and they're going, oh, here's what we got to do next. It's just hilarious. And because uh, I think reality is impressing upon, upon them, and, and a lot of the things that I mentioned months ago are now forefront in the news. And if you want to see that proved, just go back. I think these shows are going to be timeless. Um, now the attention is also quite predictably being shifted a little from the economics and politics of the recession to the morality of the business practices. Again, away from the governments who are the true architects of the whole recession. Now last week we heard about Obama's anger with the AIG executives who received a, you know, these large so-called bonuses. And to punish the recipients of the bonuses, a 90% targeted tax was directed at the executives, which we discussed in some detail last week. So this week, I I might not have done it this week except for this article, you know, re- revisited this subject so soon. And this, strangely enough, appeared in the Spirituality and Ethics section of the London Free Press on March 28th, I guess that would be Saturday, uh, written by G- uh, Jeffrey Seglin, who is Associate Professor at Emerson College in Boston, where he teaches writing and ethics. And, uh... You know, whenever I see a column with a title like this, The Right Thing, I just take a double look and see what they're saying. And his argument is that there's absolutely nothing ethical about bonuses attached to AIG AIG executives. That's the heading of, of his article. Now, the first three quarters of his essay has absolutely nothing to do with AIG, but about the decision of an individual company CEO, which apparently manufactured aircraft parts, uh, with which he disagreed and regarded as a misrepresentation and fraud on an audit report or something like that. But that incident, writes Seglin, reminded him of the AIG brouhaha. And he writes, and I quote him here, quote, "...it need hardly be said that to accept a hefty bonus when the company's performance has been so dismal as to place it on the verge of bankruptcy is unethical. Virtually nobody at AIG had the kind of year that merits a bonus." The unethical conduct does not necessarily stop there. Apparently, the bonuses were a matter of contractual record. Now, here, you know, here's the easy, what's he implying? He's implying that a contract is, is even more unethical than the payment itself. But he continues, and he says, Anyone running a company in financial trouble should make it his or her business to be aware of proposed outlays of this magnitude. Which is interesting because he thinks it's big, but it's peanuts compared to the billions and trillions the government's handing out and bailing these companies out with. Um, But he says, quote, The bailout was intended to keep a major company afloat as it found a responsible way to write its business affairs. It wasn't meant to buy new country houses for its executives. Those in the federal government who didn't care, didn't know, or made it their business not to know how AIG intended to spend the money fell short of their ethical obligations to AIG, Congress, and the taxpayers, end quote. Now, what I think is interesting here is that this writer would imply that a contract is unethical, but a government bailout of a failing company is perfectly acceptable. That's okay. You know, this isn't an ethics column, Remember. Ethics. Now, first of all, following through on a contractual obligation is exactly what being ethical is all about. You know, people who keep their promises are the ethical ones. In envy, when you have envy directed at, you know, oh, new country houses for its executives, well, that's nonsensical. And I read a joke in the in the National Post about that last week on the show. But that's an unethical motivation. You shouldn't even be talking about new country houses for executives. What, what kind, what's your motivation when you even mention something like that? And what you're doing is constantly, or, you know, you're using it to rationalize and justify a very unethical action. As always, robbing Peter to pay Paul, which is the only ethical premise upon which all non-capitalist economies and thoughts seem to operate. And if, and, and if this ethical argument applies to executive pay, think about this, then shouldn't, shouldn't it equi- apply equally to labor? Why aren't they the bad guys, too? The unions whose employees receive higher pay than their non-union counterparts also have contracts, you know. Evil, evil contracts. Oh, my goodness. Their companies are also going bankrupt. Oh, my goodness. But this writer is not talking about that, is he? uh, This writer on ethics is applying this ethics. You know, Why isn't he applying it to the millions of people who've priced themselves out of the auto manufacturing industry? No, he's going to pick these handful of executives. And if the writer supports the government bailing out companies to help them to, quote, find a responsible way to write their business affairs, then i got to ask, what's his possible definition of responsibility? And who says that any failing company is failing because its management or employees are irresponsible in the first place? That's a completely meaningless statement. You can be perfectly responsible about your business affairs and still fail. Is that a scary thought or what? You know, you can still fail if your customers are buying your product today and you're running your country, your your company's beautifully. You know, no problems, honoring all your contracts. But suddenly they stop buying your product tomorrow, uh, whether it's to go to a competitor or they just stop using it or they upgrade to something more modern, whatever. Okay, then your business is going to fail, even if you're being totally responsible about it, and that is why we invented these things called bankruptcy laws, which, to to be sure, are being abused, yes, but the the principle of the bankruptcy is to recognize that kind of a reality. You, you know, uh, the old Ayn Rand saying, morality ends where a gun begins. And I always used to like using that statement as, as sort of a magnifying glass, as a way to find the point at which, which ethics has actually broken down. And if you look at the situation It's at the point where the government spends taxpayer dollars on transferring the wealth of some to others, using that gun, the gun of the law, without the agreement, of course, or the consent of the people whose money is being transferred. That's the unethical action right there and then. How the money is spent after it's stolen is irrelevant, utterly irrelevant. Do you really care what music the the thief is playing on your stereo after he's stolen it? I actually had a debate with that over with Jim Chapman once, although he was talking about UIC benefits. But, uh, thou shalt not steal is far more than a religious commandment that applies only to individuals. It, it, It actually reflects an objective principle that applies to all human interaction, and which is possibly, perhaps, the earliest evidence of the recognition of private property. Since rightful ownership must exist first as a concept before something can be stolen, right? If if, uh, you're going to talk about ownership at all, and you have the right to it, you can't steal something from somebody unless they already own it, and you acknowledge that they own it, otherwise what you're taking wouldn't be called theft anyway. So it's the way we fool ourselves, um, you know, with definitions, with uh, making things mean what they don't mean, which, of course, all comes down to that thing I always talk about, epistemology. The act of stealing, by the way, is no less unethical when it's done by governments irrespective of whether their intentions are honorable or not. And as I've said repeatedly on this show, thou shalt not steal even if a democratic majority approves. You know, some people think that majority rule equals ethical. Well, if the majority support it, it's going to be the right thing to do. Uh-huh. Yeah, say that to the millions that died in World War One, World War Two, and all the wars around the world. They're all supported by majorities, even though you might think they aren't. So, you know, nothing ethical about the free press's spirituality and ethics column on the day this one appeared, but sure, plenty of spirituality. Now, if you want to know how this hits home, contrast what this gentleman in the ethics column has just said with what this gentleman, who's actually one of the AIG executives, wrote, um, apparently in the New York Times, and the uh, National Post reprinted it on March 26th. And it was a big headline, took up about two-thirds of a full page, and it said, Dear AIG, I Quit. And it was written by Executive VP Jake DeSantis in an open letter to Edward M. Liddy, the chief executive of AIG, which was, uh, again, published first in the New York Times and then on the National Post. And and it started with the big uh, Dear Mr. Liddy, so it's kind of addressed to the uh, president of the company. And, of course, I can't read the whole thing, but here is the essence of it, and I think... um, this speaks to what, I think this will answer a lot of your questions of what's going on with AIG. And I quote now, this is uh, Jake DeSantis speaking, quote, It is with deep regret that I have my notice of resignation from AIG Financial Products. I am proud of everything I have done for the commodity and equity divisions of AIGFP. I was in no way involved or respo- involved in or responsible for the credit default swap transactions that have hamstrung AIG nor were more than a handful of the 400 current employees of AIGFP. Most of those responsible have left the company and have conspicuously escaped the public outrage. After 12 months of hard work dismantling the company, we in the the Financial Products Unit are being unfairly persecuted by elected officials. Like you, I was asked to work for an annual salary of $1.00 and I agreed out of a sense of duty to the company and to the public officials who have come to its aid. Having now been let down by both, I can no longer justify working 10, 12, 14 hours a day away from my family for the benefit of those who have left me down. I started at this company in 1998 as an equity trader and eventually became head of business development for commodities. There actually was a very long string that he had in there. So let's put it this way, he earned his, uh, his, his title here. And he writes, the profitability of the businesses with which I was associated clearly supported my compensation. I never received any pay resulting from the credit default swaps that are now losing so much money. I did, however, like many others here, lose a significant portion of my life savings in the form of deferred compensation invested in the capital of AIGFP because of those losses. You are aware that most of the employees of your financial products unit had nothing to do with the large losses. You are as blameless for these credit default swaps swap losses as I am, but I'm disappointed and frustrated over your lack of support for us. My guess is that in October, when you learned of these retention contracts, you realized that the employees of the financial products unit needed some incentive to stay, and that the contracts, being both ethical and useful, should be left to stand. Many of the employees have, in the last six, past six months, turned down job offers for more stable employers based on AIG's assurances that the contracts would be honored. At no time during the past six months that you've been leading AIG did you ask us to revise, renegotiate, or break these contracts until several hours before your appearance last week before Congress. I think your initial decision to honor the contracts was both ethical and financially astute, but it seems to have been politically unwise. I have decided to donate 100% of the effective after-tax proceeds of my retention payment directly to organizations that are helping people who are suffering from the global downturn. This is not a tax deduction gimmick. I simply believe that I at least deserve to dictate how my earnings are spent and do not want to see them disappear back into the obscurity of AIG's or the federal government's budget. This choice is right for me. I wish others at AIGFP luck in finding peace with their difficult decision and only hope their judgment is not clouded by fear. End quote. Or, I guess, by the ethics of our former writer. But I think, you know, here again, this is a... You know, some people call their pay wages, some call it commissions, some people call them bonuses. And it's just that word bonus that's flipping everybody out. You know, like, oh yeah, this guy, these guys made a lot of money through the year and now they got this extra. Well, if you want to work 14 hours a day for a buck a year, uh, you're welcome to, uh, I got a lot of work for you. <laughs> hey, I got a lot of work for you. But of course, not too many of you would do that, would you? Now, um, here, here, coming up, we're going to take another break. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about science and government funding. But here's Obama again talking about what I think is the contradictory policy of an orderly bankruptcy, wherein the government will help out the creditors of the bankrupt companies. Uh, you know, but unfortunately, this is not inconsistent with some conservative views on the subject. Again, just to rub it in one more time, we'll be back after this, and we'll be talking about Destination Moon.
2: Uh, I want to everybody to be clear about this I know that when people hear the word bankruptcy it can be unsettling so let me explain exactly what I mean what I'm talking about is using our existing legal structure as a tool that with the backing of the US government can make it easier for General Motors and Chrysler to quickly clear away old debts that are weighing them down so that they can get back on their feet and onto a path to success a tool that we can use even as workers staying on the job building cars, uh, that are being sold. What I'm not talking about is a process where a company is simply broken up, sold off, and no longer exists. Here's the control room. This space below carries the working fluid, the reaction mass. It's water heated to dry steam by the atomic pile and expelled through this jet. Here we have the shielding to protect the crew from radioactivity. Here are the gyros behind the water tanks, and they can be used to turn the ship to any desired attitude. I admit, gentlemen, this enterprise appeals to me. I've always been attracted by, uh, shall I say, progressive forms of transportation. I've not been noted as a horse and buggy man. (laughs) Now, I'd rather like to have a finger in this new go-devil, though nothing in the world would tempt me to ride in it. But can we afford it? Well, I've been told you can, Mr. LaPorte. (laughs) Do you mind? (laughs) Now, listen, fella, I've known you from way back.
0: Two engine planes weren't fast enough. You had to go in for four. Then props weren't fast enough. You had to go in for jets. Now you've got a hold of something else. Something that'll go higher and faster than anything that ever existed before. You can't swing it alone. So you're trying to rope us in on it. Well, before we go along with you, you'll have to tell us, what's the payoff?
2: Dollars and cents? I don't know. I want to do this job because it's never been done. Because I don't know. It's research, it's pioneering. What's the moon? Another North Pole, another South Pole. Our only satellite, our nearest neighbor in the sky. But why go there, Jim? No, when we get there. We'll tell you when we get back. It's a venture I don't want to be left out of. I like your viewpoint, Jim. But there are a good many men here who won't see it. They don't even understand it. I've got a first-reader lesson all drawn up for them.
1: And if uh, if you saw that movie at all called Destination Moon, that lesson he had drawn up for him was kind of funny. It was a Woody Woodpecker cartoon explaining to people the principles of uh, propulsion and uh, the idea behind rockets, which was uh, something new at the time, I guess, back in the 50s when that movie was made. Now, by the way, welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. We'll be with you for another few minutes till noon. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening Just right. And I have to tell you, I honestly had no idea whatsoever when on last week's show, March 26th, I was dealing with the subject of government uh, subsidizing science. And at the same time, I was reading parts of Karen Selick's October 28th National (laughs) Post editorial, Science Doesn't Need Government Help. Uh, she actually had another editorial on the same theme in the same day in the National Post. Of course, I don't know about these things because I don't get around to the papers until a few days after they're published when I sit down and have a pile and I start clipping them. That's when I actually notice most articles, too. I've noticed that if you uh, happen to clip articles, you, um, things stick out for you that don't when you just turn in the pages. I don't know what the psychology of that is. But... Um, She had a... uh, Her editorial here was, and I quote the headline, Don't Rebuke Goodyear, Abolish His Job. And it was written by Karen Selleck on March 26th. And she writes, quote, uh, The recent debate over science and technology, Minister Gary Goodyear's views on evolution, is the epitome of frivolousness, compared to the really important issues it brings to mind during this recession, namely, why do we have a Minister of Science and Technology in the first place, end quote. Now... Of course, that's exactly the point I was making on the show last week, both in terms of uh, the irrelevant debate about evolution versus creationism and an overview of how government aid to science really does more measurable harm than good. But let me just continue here with with Karen's article. And she says, uh, quote, while while there may be a a necessary role for government in human affairs, shepherding science isn't part of it nor is there any proof that government is better than private organizations at selecting which scientific projects are the most beneficial to pursue. At this point now, uh, Salat goes over many of the points we we reviewed last week. And uh, as I'm reading through it, I notice she made a very mischievous suggestion, really, partly, I think, in humor, but mostly serious. And she says, quote, In fact, she says the intelligent strategy for any government that felt inclined to be frugal these days would be to eliminate all subsidies for science and technology and simply allow its citizens to free ride off the discoveries and inventions made in foreign countries and paid for by foreign taxpayers, end quote. Well, uh, I thought that was kind of funny. I recall hearing Milton Friedman make a similar suggestion with regard to uh, taxpayer-funded foreign goods of any sort that come into this country, enriching us while impoverishing them, although people think they're making money, eh? Uh, They want to make a lot of money, but they don't want to get wealthy, and it's amazing. Uh, I think I have to do a show, I've run into this a lot, the people that confuse money with wealth and can't tell the difference. Uh, There is a difference, money is part of wealth, no question, but boy, there's a big difference, and I'll have to use some examples. But I really have to thank Karen for addressing this next question in a very explicit way again. Referring to the book we discussed last week, uh, which was written by British scientist Terence Keeley, his book called Sex, Science, and Profits. And, uh, but the question is this. Without government funding, quote, would this mean that we would get only technology and no pure science, End quote? Now, my immediate reaction to this question was, uh, of course, how can you get one without the other? And of course, that's exactly what Keeley says in his book. Uh, to wit, quote, the distinction between pure science and applied science is a myth. Now, here's the kicker quote, Contrary to popular belief, new technology has, to, has historically spawned so called pure science more often than vice versa. End quote. It's interesting because I think we're always told, especially by our educators, that it's the other way around, that it's pure science that leads to invention and discovery. When, in fact, it's probably the other way around. And, and, you know, I have to say, I really never consciously thought about it. It only makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you want to build a technology that can take us to the moon or into space, well that would be a good time to start learning about the laws and the implications of gravity and the dangers of radiation from the sun and other stars and the science of pressure and on and on. And all those um, very um, theoretical, shall we say, issues that you have to know before you can put them into practice. And um, again, which only goes to demonstrate that nature, to be commanded, uh, must be obeyed. But I thought that was a good way of looking at the whole science thing. You can't, you really can't separate the two, the uh, the so-called pure science from its technological application. Uh, I, I suppose on a degree you could, and on some degree it'll always go on. The so-called pure science, both by uh, private initiative and government. And uh, one thing I should make clear about government: government does have a legitimate role in some of these areas, insofar as it relates to government's own legitimate functions, namely, of course, s- defense, military, and the things that are, uh, the government functions distinct from any other activity in society, particularly economic. That's where the government shouldn't be getting involved. Now, just got a few minutes to wrap up, and I thought, I, you know, last week when I started off on uh, giving examples of um, uh, science funding disasters by government when I was answering a uh, listener, Ans- Andy's question about government fund- funding of hydrogen science. And, um, of course, I mentioned how in my science and technology newspaper clipping file I've got this litany of scientific and technological disasters uh, created by government, and uh, or things that are just kind of irrelevant. Um, I might have touched on one or two of these last week, but just to go over some of them very quickly, you know, there's... Um, Father Raymond D'Souza, who notes that uh, he says Obama is no champion of science, even though Obama wants to spend all this money, uh, targeting stem cell research. And he points out that uh, California did the same thing. They're deeply indebted, and they they floated these public bond issues to generate billions for for, uh, the destructive research. I think I talked about this a bit last week. And, of course, the main thing is that they're saying they don't really have any application or technical results of this yet, you know, and, and apparently there hasn't been any practical use of it yet. So we're pouring all this money into something that is less uh, a technical application than it is trying to discover something that may or may not be there. Uh, we don't know until we, we, we discover it, do we? Um, you know, and then there's the epitome of frivolousness, as Karen Selleck would say, was, of course, that article I only glossed over last week, uh, Tory, science, uh, Tory Science Initiatives Need to Evolve by Don uh, Martin in the National Post, March 18th. Uh, we, of course, they're targ- talking about the targeting of Gary Goodyear over his uh, statements, uh, whether you know he, he literally translates the Bible or believes in evolution and all that kind of stuff. But um, interesting, there was some interesting point in here that was not about uh, that issue. Here is an here is important part of that of this article, not about the evolution stuff. But apparently Goodyear was in Toronto to sell the business community on his efforts to stimulate actual research and innovation beyond just, quote, bricks and mortar. There's another one of those phrases. What does that mean? Does that mean, okay, pure science? Or does that mean application? But I think it means more of the latter. Uh, quote, the government's $5 billion science-related investment is scattered piecemeal throughout the budget. And it's going to all sorts of places, post-secondary education buildings, to the places that have have already been getting it, really. And so are we actually doing anything new with this money? Is there anything new being done? Um, Not really. Meanwhile, Gary Goodyear, Minister of uh, State, Science and Technology, wrote himself in the February 25th post that his department's emphasis and mandate is, quote, to promote the commercialization and job-creating potential of Canada's leading-edge technologies, products, and services. So basically the government's still in its old-time business of trying to create jobs, which for some reason they think is, is their job. You know, the funny thing is, in a way it is, but in a negative sense. It's their job not to lose jobs for us unnecessarily, not to become an unnecessary um, obstacle to creating jobs. That's where, that's where government should really be working. And, of course, to prevent that, other people doing the same thing to each other. And on the April 11th, there was a front page uh, of 2008, actually. It goes back a year. Uh, um, Tories defend blocked sale, front page National Post. Foreign backlash fueled after u- feared after U.S. bid for aerospace firm was rejected. And uh, apparently an accompanying editorial by Terence Corcoran uh, again talked about how all this money's been poured down the drain by... Uh, the liberals and stuff, and you've got business people, too, who who want government to get involved for business reasons, and political people who want government to finance technology, for uh, government reasons, you know. And then there's always the the egalitarians who say, well, we got to hand out all this money equally to everyone. And um, basically, you know, you take all these differing advices and uh, taken together, these government investments in science, it's painting a picture of a whole bunch of contradictory purposes, um, a fundamental misunderstanding of the process that makes science and discovery possible, I think. I don't think you can force, either by punishment or by reward, uh, the thinking process necessary to make real advances in science, in technology, or any other field for that matter. That's always the purview of the individual in pursuit of self-interest, and knowledge. I mean it's so true I mean, it, or so simple that it has to be true. Anyways, that's it for this week. Make sure you don't miss next week's show, gonna be a hot one. Until then, be right, act right, stay right, and do right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all right.
2: let's not forget radio now they have a cbc radio one radio two cbc radio three which broadcasts music over the internet imagine that music over the internet you can use your two thousand dollar home computer to simulate a ten dollar radio how far have we come hooray